globalization of learning management software, augmented reality vending machines from Coca-Cola, employee adoption and training, and organizational change management at a Fortune 100 company. Those are just a few things we're going to talk about here today in episode number 119 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformations, including the strategy, people process, and technology aspects of transformations. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO and founder of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. Excited to have you here and excited to have our audience here today. Excited for all the topics we're going to cover today. It's very cool stuff we're going to cover. I think it always is, but today it just feels a little bit extra cool. Um, just as a quick side note before I get into what we're going to cover here today, uh, we have new episodes every Wednesday of this podcast. So we stream to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as dropping the audio-only podcast episodes on Google, Amazon, Spotify, Apple Podcast, etc. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us there. So be sure to check us out. Um, also, I'm hoping that this is the last episode that we film. If you're watching this video, I hope it's the last episode we film where the trees behind me are so barren. I feel like today would have been the day, you know, we're in May, it's spring, we're right in the, the heat of spring here in the Northern Hemisphere, and which is where you and I are, and uh, still no green leaves. So I'm hoping that the, the background will look a little bit, uh, a little bit better as we progress through the spring here. But uh, so consider this the informal last episode of the winter before next, hopefully next week. We get a little greenery to make it like feel more more like spring. Um, so anyway, that's a total side uh, side uh, tangent there that um, is totally off topic. But speaking of topics, what we are going to cover today is we're going to get into the Q and A jar to open up our segment. Uh, some of the questions from the audience, we're going to answer some of those questions. And then uh, Kyler has got a few hot topics for us today that we're going to cover. We're going to cover the globalization of learning management software in emerging markets. We'll talk about Coca Cola's augmented reality vending machines. And we'll also talk about five ways to derail a digital transformation. Um, so in other words, those are the things you should not do. Um, so you might want to listen to that, that part of the, the opening segment. And then later in the show, we are going to have two guests on, uh, actually three guests, two of them uh, at once in the second segment will be uh, Joanne Harrison and Nikki Tor Cortez from Optimum Training, which is a, a training organization. Um, and they also are part of an organization called Onboard ERP. It's sort of a sister company to Optimum. Uh, they're based out of the UK. They're going to be with us talking today about employee training and user adoption strategies and what some of the pitfalls are, some of the things you should be thinking about as you think about developing your training plan, your training program for your digital transformation. Um, that's a topic we haven't really talked a lot about. I feel like it's one we've sort of danced around. We've, we've talked about it in passing. We've, we've, had some subtopics related to it, but we haven't had a whole segment like this, a whole interview focused just on 
training and adoption, which in hindsight makes you wonder why not, uh, but better late than never, I suppose. A great, great conversation uh, that I'm looking forward to later. And then last but not least, we'll have Nate Stroher, who is a practice lead here at Third Stage Consulting, and he's going to chat with Kyler about a change management case study at a Fortune 100 organization. It's a client of ours that we've recently helped through their their change management initiative as part of a large uh, SAP uh, S4HANA implementation. But uh, the change management topics we're going to cover are completely agnostic and um, important, regardless of what technology you might be considering as an organization. So we look forward to that. So before we get to our guests, though, what uh, what sort of questions do you have for us, Kyler? Yeah, well, I'm kind of going to switch it up today and um, go to a recent LinkedIn post that you actually posted to your network um, asking about what are some pros and cons of working with bigger SIs like Deloitte, Accenture um, versus a smaller one. And and it's kind of interesting, some of the the case studies that we've, we've um, done in the last couple of weeks have talked about the difference between utilizing one of these big system integrators versus a smaller one or one that doesn't have experience in your specific industry. So kind of wanted to share some of what your network said and, and get your reaction to it. Sure. So <clears throat> we have some pros of the large system integrator. One of them is a, a wide range, excuse me, of capabilities and expertise, an established reputation and accesses to resources, which I, I thought was an interesting one that wouldn't come to the top of my mind. And then the person that said cons is higher rate and costs, lack of personalized attention, complex decision-making and slower response time through less agility. So what is your reaction to this specific user's feedback on um, your question here? So is that one person that provided those pros and that cons? That was one person. Oh, yeah. wow. Mm -hmm. a very, very thorough response, which is why you should follow myself and Third Stage on LinkedIn um, and other social media outlets because we have conversations like that on there that they get into a lot of uh, deep discussions like that. I agree actually with yeah. everything that, that was said there. I mean, I think those there's some definite con or some definite pros or advantages of working with a big, big consulting firm, which is that I'd say the biggest one to me is the size and scale of those organizations. I mean, they have two, 300,000 consultants throughout the world in some cases um, that would suggest that if you're looking for any sort of technical resources related to your transformation, you could theoretically get most, if not, uh, all of those technical implementation resources uh, from from one of those firms. Um, I think some of the the advantages are a little bit overstated or, or more of a perception than reality as far as like the the established name that that is real. Obviously, these big consulting firms have been have been around forever um, for decades, if not you know more than a hundred years in some cases. So these organizations are well established, whether or not that's an advantage that really helps you as an organization. I, I question that at times and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, I think that advantage is sometimes overstated. Um, but I think the disadvantages are, are well, well articulated too in that person's response in terms of the, the cost in particular. I think the cost of those organizations tends to be higher, not even just because their hourly rates higher, but because they, they, their model is to staff projects with armies of people. So it's more of a quantity and a volume sort of thing. And in order for 
a project to be meaningful to them as an organization, it needs to be pretty big. I mean, they need to be, you need to be talking dozens, if not a hundred or more people on a project in order to really, you know, be a, a high profile project for, for one of those firms. Um, so I think that, you know, if you're a really large organization and a really large client, that might be appropriate, but if you're not, then that becomes a problem. And we see a lot of companies in the mid market or the upper mid market or companies that are say fortune 1000 organizations, but they're not in that top, top tier. Like we're going to, we're going to have in our, our case study in the third segment here today, we'll talk about a fortune 100 company. It's one of the largest companies in the world. Um, for them, you know, at times it make it for them or companies like them, it might make sense to have a large system integrator like that. So I think there, those are just some things to be aware of. Um, I think there's a, a false sense of security that organizations have when they hire a Deloitte or Accenture, KPMG, Capgemini, you know, insert big consulting firm name here. Um, and a lot of times there's a perception out there that no one ever got fired for hiring Accenture or no one ever got fired for hiring IBM or Deloitte or whoever. But as I've said on this podcast multiple times before, I, I can name a lot of people that have been fired for hiring one of those firms. So their their track record is mixed at best. Um, I, I think they're highly political organizations that might be even a more important, more material um, disadvantage is they get so caught up in their own politics because they're big, massive organizations that you end up paying for their inefficiencies and their politics and their uh, gamesmanship and things that they do to protect their self-interest. And they absolutely do throw around their weight and their scale to get what they want um, out of these projects. And um, it may sound like I'm being overly critical uh, of these firms, but I used to work at one and I know exactly how they work. And it's pretty, pretty dirty. I'd say it's pretty, pretty sketchy at best is, is probably a soft way of saying it. So uh, anyway, that's, those are some of the pros and cons, but I think there's definite, definite advantages, but I'd say the disadvantages are just as great in some cases greater than the advantages of working with a, one of those big firms. Yeah. All great consideration. And, and just turning to the audience, if you could pop a pro or a con or both, um, about your opinion of working with this. And I'll, I'll ask just one follow-up question from our episode last week where we talk about SAP failures. If you haven't watched that case study, I highly recommend it, not only for SAP, but for any transformation that you're going through. Um, Adam had discussed the challenge of balancing working with a smaller SI that you do feel like you have that more of that partnership, that visibility but the lack of experience on that side. How would you respond to that? And also how would the audience respond to that? Would you go with the smaller SI where you feel like you really had that strategic partnership or would you go with a more established quote unquote um, Accenture or Deloitte because SAP fails at a higher rate or even large digital transformations fail at a higher rate? So question for you and question for the audience, definitely pop in the comments wherever you're joining today. Yeah, I'd love to see what the audience thinks too. But I, my, uh, my bias is, you know, if I have a bias in this, which I do, um, my bias is that I think if you're a if you're a mid size or call, call yourself a, a larger mid size or a smaller, you know, large enterprise. Um, so in other words, you're not Coca Cola, who we're going to talk about here in a minute. You're not Coca Cola. You're not a big, huge, massive, massive organization. Then I think there's a lot of merit in hiring a maybe a larger tier two um, system integrator, because you're, you're just going to get the, the dynamics are different. It's hard to explain in some ways, but it's like you, you've sort of level out the playing field a bit. If you, if you're a, a pretty large company, but you're working with Deloitte, I mean, Deloitte and Deloitte is massively bigger than you as an organization. Um, the, 
the playing field just isn't even and there's they have too much leverage and influence over you no matter how hard you try they they will throw their weight around so i think there's you know there's a lot of really good tier two system integrators that focus on certain technologies that are good at it um you know like for example in uh in the sap space since we're talking about sap right now there there was a company called intelligence they've since been acquired by ntt data which is a, a large japanese uh, technology company um, but when company when that company intelligence especially when they were a standalone organization before they got acquired um, they were one in some cases still are one of the system integrators will recommend for companies implementing sap and the reason for that is you sort of get the best of both worlds. You get a better balance with them. You get the size and scale, maybe not quite 300,000 consultants throughout the world with big offshore centers in India and all this stuff, but they've got tens of thousands of people to draw from, maybe not hundreds of thousands. Um, so big enough, but not so big that um, they're going to have undue influence or outsized influence over your organization. So they're easier to manage. They're easier to control. Um, they don't play, they, they, you don't have quite as much of the gamesmanship and politics and the internal infighting and all the garbage that goes along with those big, big organizations. And I'm not picking just on big system integrators. I think any big organization, you get that big, you just become highly inefficient, highly, uh, you, you start to lose your culture, you start to lose your focus, and it just isn't value add to customers at some point for, for many, if not most organizations that get to that size. So uh, that that's sort of my knee-jerk reaction to it, but I love to hear experience from people that have worked with one of these firms or hired one of these firms. I'd love to hear your feedback on on the pros and cons. Yeah, either way, it's a complex and really critical decision um, when looking at that. And as a resource to that conversation, I'm going to pop a QR code up here for our software selection buyer's guide, which talks about system integrators, how to negotiate with them, um, how to select not only a software, but the partners and the technical partners. Um, so I'm going to pop that up here. And it's also in the link description, wherever you're getting either the podcast or the video today. Um, so definitely something that is a free resource to help kind of um, take the complexity out of it with an agnostic opinion, because everyone has something to say, especially if they're trying to sell services um, via an SI or, or software. Um, but third stage has the ability to be completely agnostic in that conversation, which is why we give you these materials because it's from our own experience and we have no dog in that fight. Our only um, objective is achieving maximum value out of the technology that you choose um, as a business. Uh, so that's one thing there, but definitely a, a really interesting and passionate conversation, right? We could talk yeah. about it all episode. Absolutely. Uh, but with that, I know, right? We we absolutely should. Um, you need like um, you need to do some sort of video with like all X big SIs and ask them a bunch of questions. We have a lot of people here at Third Stage that that left that world to kind of take a more independent, agnostic approach. So it's a good idea. And then we could we could have them sort of in the shadow. We'll distort their voice so we don't reveal their identity, and they can sort of be like a witness protection sort of person, just to make it really dramatic. You know, to ask them the hard questions that they can add, answer freely. Like, you know, the Dateline close shot where you don't know if they're like in jail or they're not in jail type of right. thing. So exactly. not that I ever watch those shows. Oh, I, I know you do because we've talked <laughs> about it. <laughs> and I do too. I love crime shows. I think we've talked about that on this podcast before. Um, okay, great. So let's get to this question, which was on one of your YouTube videos about supply chain processes and management. 
Um, so this user asked you, what is the future impact of supply chain processes due to ALS? So I had to Google that if you don't know what it is, because I didn't know what it, what it was. Um, so uh, let me pull it up here. That's a, I feel like I should know it. I'd bail you out if I could remember what ALS stands for. No, it's automatic gonna... identification. It's not L, it's I. I'm so sorry. Oh, so okay. automatic identification system. And I know you know the acronym, so I knew you could answer this question. But basically what it is, just for our audience members that might be more on the business technologist side as myself, it's um, automatic tracking system that uses uh, receivers and different uh, vessel tracking services, um, for supply chain specifically, more of an emerging technology within kind of the niche supply chain uh, world. So um, I know you've talked about a lot of these like almost best of breed operation systems when it comes to supply chain. So I thought it was interesting to even just talk about the evolution of supply chain management technology um, when you have all of these new solutions that do allow you to automate the processing. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, there's other emerging technologies in addition to AIS like blockchain and, um, you know, even even uh, augmented reality and metaverse, which we're going to talk about here in the Hot Topics segment. There's emerging tech like that that's getting baked fairly quickly into supply chain management software. And, and I think it's a good reminder of the strengths or the advantages of working with a supply chain consulting or a supply chain management specific software versus a, you know, a broader ERP system that may not be able to be everything to everyone. Um, so I think those smaller, more innovative supply chain, best of breed supply chain solutions can can be great providers of AIS and um, artificial intelligence and all sorts of other emerging technologies as well. Absolutely. And, and I want to do a quick, would you rather, because you know, it's just my favorite thing to do. When it comes to supply chain audience, would you rather have a core ERP system or a best of breed solution specific to supply chain. Um, so you can choose this or that in, in the comments here um, to kind of get that conversation going. Uh, but with that as well, I'm going to pop another QR code up here to our um, supply chain management playbook, which talks about supply chain in digital enterprise technology uh, and all the different really jam-packed kind of one-stop shop for all things supply chain management, whether it comes to systems or understanding that visibility. Again, if you're getting this on our audio platforms, it is in the description as well. But would you rather best of breed supply chain technology with all kind of these emerging systems baked in or one core ERP when it comes to the ability to manage your supply chain? So Eric, I know you don't like these questions, but would you rather? <laughs> well, okay. So I would say, <laughs> are you asking me to answer it or are we just going to Yeah, no, I'm asking you to answer, <laughs> okay. but I always know you don't want to answer because it, I mean, obviously it depends. We all know that is the answer, but I know. And I, in and I can tell you're forcing me into a box, <laughs> into a black or white decision, which you know, I love so much. Um, no, I'd say if I had to choose and I'm going to assume that the question is related to a supply chain intensive organization that has a extensive, robust global supply chain. Then I would say a um, with the state of current ERP systems in general, when we look at SAP and Oracle and Microsoft and their migration to the cloud and the relative lack of maturity of those systems, they're they're coming along. They're going to be mature at some point, but they're not quite there yet um, in many cases. 
and the fact that those systems, even once they are fully mature, are just aren't going to be able to be as good at certain things like supply chain management as other systems or as, as uh, standalone systems. Um, I would, for that reason, I would say I would lean more towards a best of breed supply chain focused solution. Um, even though yes, it creates integration challenges and you've got multiple systems. Now you've got to manage, um, those, those, those challenges and downsides are still there, but they're not as material as they used to be 10 or 20 years ago when it was a lot more complex to integrate systems and technology in general was just harder to use back then. So um, that that's that's a way I would lean. But at, really, at the end of the day, my real answer is it depends. But if you make me choose, I'll choose uh, best of breed. Hashtag it depends. You can answer would you rather with hashtag it depends in the comments here. And I understand. I feel you because it does depend. Definitely. And I hope to see that hashtag it depends trending on yeah. Twitter and LinkedIn Absolutely. later today. Absolutely. Well, let's get into some of these hot topics um, and transition here in, in just a minute um, while the audience is kind of answering those questions so we can kind of see that feedback. That's a great idea. Yeah, we'll wait to see your feedback. We will wait your feedback and we'll come back with some hot topics, as, as Kyler mentioned. Um, we're going to come back and we'll talk about a few different hot topics and trends in the digital transformation space. But for, first, we're going to take a quick break and uh, stay tuned beyond that as well, because later in the show, We'll have two guests on who are going to be on discussing employee training and adoption best practices and how they contribute to success or failure on a digital transformation or an ERP implementation. And then later in the show, our, our guest after them will be Nate Stroher, who's going to be on talking about change management at a Fortune 100 company, a global Fortune 100 company that we recently worked with and are still working with. Um, we'll give sort of a real life, real time case study of uh, as it relates to change management with that uh, organization so stay stick around we'll be right back with more transformation ground control If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. And this podcast covers all sorts of things related to digital transformation, uh, including the strategy, people, process, and technology aspects of transformation. So, uh, Kyler, you've got a few really interesting hot topics here to chat about and sort of trend-related topics. So what have you got for us? Absolutely. Well, I want to talk about a very cool move by an LMS um, system, learning management system, PowerSchool, that's actually moving into the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Kuwait, so in the Middle East, um, to serve over 750,000 students across this country in this emerging technology. And basically, the goal here is to innovate and provide these mission-critical solutions to students to be able to realize their, their full potential. 
Um, so we always see kind of that movement of systems into emerging areas. So I wanted to get basically your feedback on how do you create a, a culture that might not be as as familiar with a new system, learning management in this in this case. Um, how do you create that change management of putting that into the system when it affects so many levels, teachers, students, staff, parents, it's, you know, so community driven. Um, it's a completely new opportunity, but also a, a huge change and shift in the way that they provide information and access to students. Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, very, very relevant to us because one of our largest clients here in the U.S. at our in our U.S. office is uh, one of the largest school districts in uh, the United States. is one of our clients, so it's something we're dealing with right now and helping them implement an Infor uh, Cloud Suite solution in the ERP system uh, that we're coming up coming up on a go live later this year with that client. Um, and it's also interesting question in that you're dealing with an academic learning based organization that oftentimes has the most trouble adapting to new learning tools and new ways of doing business. So that's sort of the, the irony of it all. But I think, you know, the good news though, is when you have, well, I guess it's good news and bad news. Good news is you typically you have highly educated, smart people working at academic and, and uh, learning based organizations. That's the good news. The bad news is sometimes those types of people are harder to change than people that are less educated, uh, strangely enough. And it's something we see, it's a dynamic or a phenomena we see commonly with engineering-based organizations or uh, organizations in the field of sciences where you get a lot of PhDs and people that are highly, highly educated and make you and I look like just, you know, below, below average IQ type people or whatever. Um, so, but those people are actually sometimes harder to change because they know so much. Um, usually they're so busy and in such demand and they are so confident in their knowledge that sometimes that confidence translates into resistance to change or just a lack of interest in changing. So I think it's something that's very important, you know, in academic institutions or any, especially any sort of institution or organization that has highly tenured, highly educated people. You just have to be aware that it's not going to be easier. In fact, I think it's going to be harder to change them than if you had a, you know, a, a lower educated blue collar workforce. Sometimes they're actually easier to to go along with changes and to teach how to do new things than uh, than others. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my knee jerk reaction to it. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting um, foundational question for our for your conversation later about user adoption and you know the need mm -hmm. for additional communication, especially in uh, an area like education. And and just you know, funny side note on the Cheatham family side, we as two technology executives are unable to use the LMS at our son's school, and we've been in the office so many times, and they're like, "So what do you guys do for work?" And we're both like. We're in technology, and they're like, "Hmm, it's kind of weird. You can't pay your tuition on the platform." They think, so, "Why is it really that you're not?" Yeah, that's right. What kind of technology? So, you know, that has been a transformation for us in moving into the school system with our our pre-K. But, 
But moving to Coca-Cola, so they have a new augmented reality ecosystem that actually has vending machine tech. So it's kind of interesting because it's one of their first overall distribution mechanisms and revenue drivers that have now gone into augmented reality. And so Snap, which is the, the company that owns social media platform Snapchat, is really been pioneering augmented reality specifically for brands. And the reason I like this case study is because it actually showcases data. So what happens, just so you can visualize how this actually works, is they installed a, a prototype that's an AR-enabled vending machine, which they can which consumers can garner experiences and rewards. So it's much like a customer loyalty program that we've talked about in similar episodes in our hot topic. But Snap actually did this study around the future of shopping, uh, specifically around AR. And brands that create innovative experiences, such as this vending machine, are 82% more likely to be recommended to others, specifically with the Gen Z or millennial generation. Uh, so definitely something that was that was interesting. Um, additional brands that have leveraged this technology is Nike, Levi. So some very, very big consumer product brands that are kind of jumping into that customer loyalty space. So no, you will not actually receive a Coca-Cola, but you could receive rewards or different experiences around Coca-Cola if you do engage in, in that ecosystem. So something kind of interesting as we see business technology move outside of just the core systems, but into enable customer experience through many different platforms. That is interesting. I, I, um, as you were talking, I was wondering, I was trying to think of like who, who the real audience or users of augmented reality in the metaverse are. Um, cause I would have thought like, you know, younger audiences, like you said, you know, I think you said was a Gen Z and millennials that are primarily yeah. more likely to buy a product if they are exposed in, in augmented reality. Um, but I don't know. I just don't, I guess I'm at the wrong age in life where I just don't, I don't have that great of a connection with that um, with that generation, except for the ones that work for us, but we don't have a lot of them, um, you know, that are, that are, uh, at that, in that, uh, demographic, but, uh, is that, is, is metaverse still, is metaverse and augmented reality still catching on? It, I mean, is it still, it, I think your... so, but like we talked about the other day, um, how metaverse has kind of fallen behind chat GPT, which is such an interesting or open AI, we should say, which is such an interesting evolution because we've seen tech giants literally name their companies after the metaverse and put so much capital behind the metaverse. And then you have kind of this open AI system that broke the internet. So it's, it's, it's one of yeah. those things is just as a reminder, <laughs> you never yeah. really know where those trends are going. So. Yeah. And said company meta is not doing well. I mean, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's still a large organization, but they are struggling. They've had massive layoffs and they're trying to get their costs under control you know, to match their revenue. So I, I will be curious to see how that, how that unfolds, but um, it did, you know, six months ago, it felt like metaverse was like really catching steam. And then all of a sudden yeah. chat GPT came out of nowhere. Not that they're competing technologies yeah. necessarily, but it was just interesting how chat GPT came out of nowhere and has gathered pretty mainstream widespread adoption. Whereas augmented reality and metaverse doesn't seem quite there yet. Yeah. And it's just still so misunderstood, um, especially because it's, it's not, 
it's not common practice to go on and have an experience, a business experience in augmented reality. So we'll kind of see how that turns out. But I do know in your question jar, there is a question about Meta and their layoffs in here. So stay tuned for some next next episodes. We might get to it next time. But um, I know people have been asking you that specifically on your social media too. So finally, I can prepare for one of your questions. Now, now you've given me a heads up. <laughs> I know. I'm going to have to spice it up to keep you on your toes. But um, yeah. I want to get to this last um, article because it's really, really interesting. It's actually in CIO Magazine, and it it takes a variety of different studies and talks about – it's actually five surefire ways to derail your digital transformation. And this is kind of where you eat, sleep, and breathe in here, not only from our work at third stage of helping – to reg- restore, kind of get back on track transformations, but also your expert witness work um, when it comes to having a, a front row seat to, to failure. So I wanted to share these five with you um, and kind of get your reaction to, is there one that's more important than another and, and garner that insight. Um, so just to give our audience a baseline, this is actually from Gardner, a lot of the research, um, and it says 89% of corporate boards say Digital is embedded in all business business growth strategies, but only 35% of organizations are on track to achieve their digital transformation goals. Um, they also reference a KPMG report in here that says 72% of CEOs have aggressive digital investment strategies. And then a McKinsey report showcases the harsh reality that that about 70% of digital transformations still fail. And this this is a very new survey within the last couple months. Uh, so obviously, there hasn't been a ton of shifting in the industry when it comes to overall f- failure rate. So I'm going to share these five with you um, just real quick, and then we can kind of dig into any that you feel like should be a priority. So number one is they prioritize too many initiatives without a shared vision. Number two is they neglect to set collaboration and communication principles. Number three is customized solutions to meet everyone's requirements throughout the organization. Number four is they under-invest in developing digital trade Uh, trailblazers and not to create some bias in this conversation, but this is the one I spent the most time kind of researching. Um, And then number five is drive KPIs and data-driven decisions without a data strategy. So before you answer, Eric, I'm going to turn to the audience. And if you could pop in the comments, which one you think is the biggest failure point, um, one, two, three, four, or five, or if you remember the names, just pop them in the comments wherever you're joining and we can create a quick poll to see what the audience thinks um, and see if that matches up with with you, Eric. So what's your feedback on that really interesting research? Not to bias the audience, but it depends. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Hashtag um, it depends. <laughs> hashtag it depends. Uh, well, I think yeah, I kind of jot them down because I, I knew I'd forget them if I didn't. Um, I would say I'm going to set aside the digital trailblazers one just because I'm highly allergic to uh, word salad. Yes. <laughs> I was trying to think of the right word. <laughs> academic, overly academic ivory tower phrases. And that sounds super academic and ivory tower. So I'm going to set that one aside. That's definitely not my 
<laughs> um, that's, that's my last choice, but I would say, um, probably the, probably one of the first two that you mentioned, actually, maybe it might actually go in that order. One, two, three, it might be the, the order you mentioned the first three for, for me, um, prior to prioritizing other initiatives without a clear, a clear vision. I, I know I'm simplifying or, or try to simplify what you said. Um, but not having that clear vision, I think that's a number one reason why, uh, projects fail. There's just not clarity on what this project has to do with um, the overall corporate or organizational strategy, or if the intent is there, the execution doesn't match that vision. That's also common. It, sometimes it's just flat out not articulated. Other times it's articulated, but the way we're executing is not aligned with that with that vision. Um, so that's number one for me. And then um, neglecting communication principles, um, I think is another one and knowing what to communicate, how to communicate, when to communicate, um, knowing that you never are going to communicate enough and whatever you're doing is probably something you should be doing more of. Um, and then the customized solutions, I, that one is high up there for me in my top three, a, a number three in my ranking, but it's with a caveat that a lot of times people think that customization of any sort is just ridiculous and you should not do it. And when I say customize, I don't mean simply only customizing software and changing source code, that sort of customizing, but just creating a custom solution, whether it be best of breed, or maybe you're customizing some software, maybe you're even customize or custom creating some software in some isolated cases, because it's such a competitive advantage. I think some customization is actually very powerful. So I, I don't want to, that's my caveat is that it can be extremely powerful when you do it right. But the problem is so many organizations end up customizing a bunch of stuff that they don't need to, and they, they shouldn't be customizing, or they end up customizing the things that are, or should be vanilla processes. They're not sources of competitive advantage. So why would you bother customizing a solution for that? But your product facing, your customer facing stuff that gives you some source of competitive advantage. Yes, maybe you should customize that stuff more than you already are. So, um, so customization is my number three with a big but or a big caveat behind that. Absolutely. Um, well, definitely a, a really interesting kind of top five list here from a lot of supporting research. So excited to hear from the audience what they're thinking as far as failure points. And if your failure points not on that list, definitely feel free um, to share here. And then I'm going to pop one last QR code up here and as well as in the description, and that's to our 2023 digital transformation report. And that talks a lot about kind of failure points or opportunities to see that your project is going off track and what that means. Uh, so definitely check that out. It's our kind of main asset playbook that we share with our clients, kind of pre-work, if you will, um, to engaging um, with third stage. But Thank you, Eric, and thank you, audience, for all that insight. Um, I know I'm excited to hear from our other guests on this this episode as well and kind of see what they have to say about some of these things. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk more specifically about uh, employee or software training and employee adoption as it relates to ERP implementations, digital transformations. We're going to have Joanne Harrison and Nikki Cortez from Optimum uh, and their sister company called onboarderp.com, which is uh, both of them are learning enablement and training sorts of uh, organizations focused on all sorts of different software platforms. So unlike a lot of the technology in the space today that only focuses on providing learning resources and training resources for certain systems, their solution and their offering is focused on uh, all sorts of systems like SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, et cetera. So they're agnostic like we are. 
they just happen to focus a bit more on one area or one dimension of digital transformations. We thought it'd be great to have them on the show to talk about those dimensions of training and adoption. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back from that break, we'll have Nikki and Joanne on the show to talk about training and adoption. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to listen to us or watch us wherever you prefer. And uh, you can check us out every Wednesday. So I'm excited for our next guest, first time guest on the show. It's an organization that we work with closely here at Third Stage. It's a company called Optimum, and their sister company is called OnboardERP.com. And from those companies are Nikki Cortez and Joanne Harrison. We're going to have them here to talk about uh, how employee training and adoption links back to ERP failures, or another way to look at it is how employee training and adoption can enable ERP implementation success. So depending on how you address it, if you address it well, it's going to contribute to your success. If you don't do it well, and if you make some of the common pitfalls we're going to talk about here today, then it's more likely to create challenges, if not failure, for your implementation and your transformation. So with all that being said, uh, Joanne and Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting us, Eric. Um, so Nikki and I are both directors at both Optimum, our UK um, ERP training consultancy, and also our USA brand, onboardelp.com. Um, we've both been with the business since 1998. Um, so Optimum predominantly is based in the UK, and we've supported more than 700 rollouts of different ERP softwares globally with their adoption and training phase. Um, and we support ERP projects in different ways. Sometimes we support the training end-to-end, -end, sometimes we help to build that internal training capability and then take a collaborative approach. So it really does depend um, organization to organization, it's always different. Um, and we've recently launched our new North American brand on board ERP with a small office in Chicago. Um, and typically we, we engage with around three to four North American organizations every year, but onboard ERP is hopefully gonna give us that um, increased exposure um, into North America. Great. So, so well established in in Europe or in, in UK in particular, but but expanding rapidly into other other parts of the world, particularly in the yeah. US. It sounds like absolutely. And the majority of our projects are actually multinationals. So there might be a UK presence, but often they're global. They're quite large organisations. Um, but we sort of felt that North America needed that sort of dot com presence, needed us there um, with the footfall in America. So yeah, hence on board ERP. Got it. 
And just to clarify too, the work you do for training and adoption uh, within the ERP implementations is fairly technology agnostic, right? So you're, you're doing it for all sorts of different platforms, not just one type Correct. of ERP system. Correct. Um, the majority, I mean, there are, you know, a few favorites, if you like, and that's typically S4HANA, Microsoft, ERP, Oracle, Epicor, Info-IFS. Um, they are the core ones, but then often we get approached for, for tools like ServiceNow or ones that we may not have massive exposure to, but we are system agnostic, um, very similar to third stage. Okay, great, which is how this whole relationship and conversation started was just that that shared technology agnostic view of the world and of course the love and appreciation for change management employee adoption and training um so we'll focus on the latter part obviously here today with with employee adoption and training um to start so uh, great to have you both here today and thank you thank you for being here i look forward to the the conversation um and thank you by the way for everyone dropping in the chat uh where you're from today um, just to give a few examples of where people are joining from uh, before I get to my questions here to start. Um, we have people joining from Denver, Colorado, Atlanta, Georgia, Raleigh, North Carolina, Bryan, Texas in the U.S., uh, Reed, Germany, Sweden, London, India, Ireland. So lots of different countries here. So thank you all for joining from wherever you're joining from today. Um, so just as, to start the conversation, and, and again, we'll, we'll turn to employee quite or audience questions here in, in a moment. See, I'm already thinking about employees and training and adoption. I can't even help myself uh, by butchering my first question. Um, but my first question then for you is, when you think about why ERP projects fail, oftentimes it traces back to poor training, poor employee adoption, and, and really just a lack of focus on that critical work stream. Um, maybe help us, can you help us unpack that a little bit? Like help us understand how, why is that? I mean, I, I certainly appreciate and uh, agree with the statement or with the question that a major reason why projects fail, fail is because of that lack of focus on employee adoption and training, but maybe help us understand why is that? What are, what are some of the symptoms or the, the ways that that unfolds in a, in a failure or a troubled project? Sure, yeah. So I think generally what we see is the overinvestment in technology and the underinvestment in the people side. And I think there seems to be a sort of lack of education generally around the importance of training the wider workforce is often overlooked or, you know, the poor relation to a project. And our role is to try and flip that script. Um, and I think there's often the assumption um, that the partner or the SI will, of course, have training included in the contract. Um, it might be mentioned right at the bottom of the proposal with no detail around how training for the end users will be designed, documented and delivered. Um, so this can then delay the research into training options. And so we often see the goal lines being delayed whilst they figure out their training options too late. So key message there, which we'll talk about later, hopefully, is plan it early. Think about it really early. Um, and then you have a result when the system actually goes live with no training. Um, and what you see there is those extended hypercare periods. We're not privy to know how much that costs, but you probably know that, Eric, when you go into those rescue projects. Um, because the result is users are just disengaged, frustrated, they don't know how to operate in the new world. And the general feeling among staff then is that the system doesn't work. And actually it's because they haven't been trained in the system. Um, and the staff are the drivers for change. So you've got, you've got to get them on board early, communicate early, um, and engage and train them properly to sort of see that success coming out at the end. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And uh, it does seem like that training oftentimes is, uh, I don't know if afterthought is the word that, that comes to mind for me, but it, it's more uh, 
you know, hey, we're going to train the trainer somewhere down the line and you presumably later, you know, much later in the project, we're going to train your trainers and then your trainers are going to go out and train the, the mass employees on how to use the system. And that's a pretty common approach to your point in the proposal, but it, but it's sort of a footnote, you know, in, in a proposal. And, and it's, I don't think a lot of organizations fully appreciate what that, what that really means in terms of the level of effort that can and should go into a training the trainer approach. And I'm going to come back to this point in just a moment, but whether or not train the trainer is the right approach or the best approach. So hold that thought for a second, because I want to come back to that. But um, is, is that sort of what you're saying is that you, you see these sort of, uh, you know, lack of focus early on is it sounds like is what you're saying. There's a lack of focus early in the project as far as planning and really fully unpacking what that training program is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is a place for, I mean, the train, the trainer doesn't work. And, and like you said, we'll touch on that later. Um, but often what you get is, I don't know, 10 days of generic project team training, which is needed. And that's great for your project team. But actually, if you think they're going to have time to cascade train into the wider workforce later on, um, you know, think again kind of thing, because they're going to be really busy with go live prep and other more important things. So, yeah, it, it's a, a certain mindset that we're trying to change. And I'm not going to say that this is every partner in SI. Some do get it right. Some will say you need to get help. You need to find you know trainers or, or get internal trainers. Um, but this is what we're seeing the majority of um, on the marketplace. Yeah. Do you know? Uh, do you know why that this is that that uh, vendors have sort of universally adopted that train the trainer approach? Is it because they just aren't trainers by profession and it's just sort of the easiest way to address it without really addressing it as <laughs> that or, or what do you think it is yeah so i think it's there's different perceptions of what train the trainer actually is and for our si's they are typically um, ensuring that they train out their project team on what is probably at the time a generic build so those smes or super users can have informed conversations with the si but Apart from that, that's their job done with regards to training. Um, and then it's really the end users, which is the much bigger and wider user community that we really need to look after because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are advocating the system and making sure it's used to, to its optimum. Right, right. Yeah, makes, makes total sense. So what are your thoughts then on sort of the pros and cons of that train the trainer approach? It's universally adopted it seems to be by vendors and system integrators and I, I agree with that statement but why uh, what are some of the pros and cons of that approach and what, what should yeah. we be aware of sure so we sort of like talked a little around the si using the train the trainer model it's pretty informal and more workshop delivery however when you start looking at the end user communities across your organization who are going to be your core users there are definitely pros and cons for the train the trainer model um, a few of the pros, for example, you're upskilling your internal team who can deliver the training not only for go live, but you've got business as usual expertise to roll out that training on a one to one or indeed on a wider scale induction program. Um, ideally, these um, trainers, internal trainers that you are going to upskill um, are selected because of their business knowledge as well as their technical knowledge. Right. So they're giving the end user everything in one training session, both the answers to their business related questions, but also explaining the how to questions. And it's obvious um, it's a reduction on any external training costs that you um, incur. However, we know there is going to be a flip side to that one. So I'll get onto the cons. 
Um, but it also provides a platform for internal upskilling for users that have joined the project but see their direction going in another, another way. So being part of an ongoing project team to support the build and the life, life cycle of that um, ERP system. But talking about the, the considerations or the cons, as mentioned, it does reduce external cost, but there is a cost internally to you because you're taking away what will be a valuable resource from the coalface and from the business to work on projects and to train. So there is that very fine balancing act. And not all super users or subject matter experts make the best trainers in a classroom. It's a fact. And sometimes they don't even enjoy doing it. So what some of our clients do and work with us to do is they group their subject matter experts or their super users into a training team and then coaches. So you can actually categorize your internal workforce. So you've got that brilliant one-on-one -on -one, um, coaching service you can call on, but then for go live and larger audiences, you might collaborate with an external party or a third party training partner. Um, and although scripted, you need to be very careful because you can get, um, I'm not gonna call them cowboys, but you can get a number of trainers that think, oh, I'll go off scripted a bit off piste and the danger there is we're introducing um, bad habits and maybe workarounds and not following a process um, correctly all the way through so something a little bit of a risk there depending on the type of super user and our subject matter expert it is um, and if training has historically been delivered by internal staff members what we found is some organizations reach out to a third party so that your internal staff can see you're taking their education and their internal upskilling um, seriously. And it's not just a case of, oh, um, such and such will be training you from the finance team. Oh, right, okay, so I always get my training internally. It really makes a statement and a mark that you're actually looking out for the, the usage of the system as well as the, the learning and education of internal um, staff. So it's a really key one, actually. Mm. But I suppose the trainer, trainer does have pros and cons. Um, many of our clients adopt a collaborative approach. So if you've got some work streams which are um, fairly complex, um, fairly detailed, and they just, they're under-resourced on the project team, give them to us or give them to a third party. And the smaller ones, the self-service elements, the lighter touch ones, they can easily manage internally. So I would say um, that it's never one size fits all. There's always going to be a bespoke training program that will work for your ERP um, initiative and implementation. Yeah, there's great points all around. I mean, I think the, the, separation or the distinction of training versus coaching that's a really good point that i think that's really well said in terms of you absolutely need those coaches right those people that really do know the business the people that can help answer those sorts of questions but that may or may not be the same person or people they're helping with the with the training itself so i think that's a that's a really good point and then uh, i also like your point about how um it, it sends a message to the organization that we're taking this seriously. We're creating a robust training program, not just for your existing employees, but even going forward in the future. You know, that's an asset that you can use as you onboard new employees, or if you go through a merger or acquisition, you've got that sort of um, standard training material that you can use to, you know, scale up pretty fast. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do you see Eric from, from your side, because you asked the question why partners don't, have training as a separate work stream i mean you engage with more partners do you have a view on that yeah it seems as though it plays to their strengths you know by doing train the trainer it's playing to the si or the vendor strengths they know the product really well and they're not good at training or communication so what better answer than to create a train the trainer mentality where i can 
play to my strengths. I can teach you to how to use my software off the shelf. I don't have to worry about how I configured the software, or how your business works. That's for you to figure out. Um, so I can see how that sort of off offloading it to the client creates a perception that, yeah, you're addressing change management and adoption and training, but you're not really, you're just sort of pushing it off to the, to the team that's already overworked and overstaffed and or overtaxed in their efforts. So um, I don't know if that's anyone had this brilliant universal plan years ago, but it seems to be that sort of the, the herd mentality that you see with, with vendors and SIs. Um, yeah. And then you have to take their support contract because of course you can't use the system. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're here with Nikki and Joanne from optimum and onboard ERP.com talking about employee training and adoption and how that influences the success or failure of an ERP implementation or digital transformation. We've got a lot more to talk about. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here having a conversation with Joanne and Nikki from Optimum in the UK, talking about how employee training and adoption can contribute to ERP and digital transformation success or failure. Let's jump back into the conversation. Now, what about um, what about limitations of generic off-the-shelf, out-of-the-box training materials. I mean, most of these vendors like S4HANA, you mentioned before, Microsoft Dynamics, they've been around for years and they've had time to build up some a pretty good library of standard training materials. What are the limitations? I think this is a really important point because so many organizations, including a lot of our clients, just don't understand or don't fully recognize the fairly severe limitations of that standard off-the-shelf or out of the box training material or training content. How, what are the limitations of that? Or maybe give us some examples yeah. there. Sure. Um, yeah, there are considerable limitations and you are right. Some of the um, well-established software houses do have off the shelf training material, but there are limitations. And some of those are, they are typically functional in content and instruction. So what that means is it cannot address any of the business specific or business um, context messages to all audiences, it's impossible, right? Because you've got multiple sectors and multiple industries reading and referring to the same content. So it cannot be that specific to that audience. So that leaves the audience a tad disengaged and also asking the question, is this pertinent to me? Is this right for me? For example, if I'm looking at content that shows me how to raise a purchase order uh, to order steel from China, yet I'm in retail or pharma, that's not really going to help me that much. It's, you know, it's going to leave me confused. I need to understand and see and read language that's pertinent to my business, my products, my customers, my suppliers, etc. 
Um, so illustrations and examples, they're all generic. And a significant percentage of a learner's understanding is not just by reading explanatory uh, content, it's by looking at screen illustrations. Those screen illustrations, which a lot of our um, online tools do, so Task Recorder, Click Learn, all of those types of automated online tools that are typically sold as the answer to everybody's training problem, reduce your cost by 70%, no additional external costs, they actually take screenshots of empty dialogue boxes. Now, surely you would want a value, a meaningful value or text description or business aligned content, because that's also going to contribute to our learners understanding as to how they would populate those screens. So I suppose I would say that the, the key word for me is it's not business process aligned. Um, it's very generic and it doesn't actually address the bespoke requirements. And more and more now we're actually coming across organizations who unfortunately have spent their training budget or managed their training budget based on the cost of one of these system line tools. So for example, we've come across um, Oracle Guided Learning recently, but also with Task Guides and Enable Now. And it really is sold as being the answer to everything. But we've discovered, for example, with Oracle Guided Learning recently, one of our clients needed seven languages translated. Um, but they've come back and been told that they can probably get French translated and it's 80% accurate. Now, for a client that's actually investing, you know, put a lot of their, their training budget and their, their trust in a tool like that, it needs to give them more than that. And as Eric quite rightly said, we've got a lot of these big software houses, so Oracle for Oracle Fusion and S4HANA and so on. They have libraries worth of generic content. But again, some of these online solutions are literally they sell role-based training, but that role-based training is basically a whole combination of lots of different process guides that that poor end user who may, I'm not going to say as 400, show my age there, but maybe moving from a completely different environment and just reading content on screen, that's not going to cut it. They need a blended approach. They need maybe just that first, get them across that first hurdle and then they can start self-learning um, tools. But it's really, really important that you understand, I would say, that you know what you're buying and you know what you're getting if you are investing in any type of automated learning program. Do your research, do your homework. Yeah, great point. And and you know another thing you've you've alluded to in that response, Nikki, is the fact that um, so many of these ERP systems are are fairly flexible. I mean, they can do a lot of different things. And even the simplest workflow, like accounts payable, you mentioned. There isn't really a standard accounts payable process that every organization is using, even for the same product. I mean, even for the same product, you're going to have variations of how that system yeah. was configured and, and also how you're going to not only interact with the system, but what are the things that happen outside the technology? Like, what are the things that don't relate to that one technology? So often we get myopically focused on S4 HANA, Microsoft D365 or whatever the tool yeah. is that we don't think about, well, what do you do outside the system? Or what other systems are you touching? Do you need to touch to be able to do your job? And I imagine that's part of the training approach too that you would suggest. Yeah, it's such a valid point, Eric, because um, a lot of um, clients that we work with or, or deal with initially, they'll ask, oh, so you'll only train us in um, Dynamics 365 or just S4 HANA. No, we're, we train in end user solutions. So if our end user touches D365 um, extensions and an external pricing um, or yeah, pricing tool, 
all of those need to be addressed as part of that end user experience. Otherwise, we're not giving them their true role and how it will be used with that system. So, and that's the difference, I suppose, with um, SI training. It's very much, unless you're starting to look at integrations, it's very much under the bonnet looking at that ERP functionality and its modules. For us, we're looking at what holistically that end user needs and also not what they don't need. In other words, we've probably all been on courses at some stage in our lives where we've just been doing this. You know, counting the clouds because the content that's being trained out at that present moment in time is not relevant and then we miss a bit that is. So the idea behind that bespoke training is it's all got to be relevant for the end user and it will encompass any of those third party tools that you mentioned, Eric. Right. Yeah, great point. Mm -hmm. Just to turn to the audience here, some of the audience comments and question. Um, like on LinkedIn says, I'd, I'd speak about S4HANA. It's true that most material is available for functional people but it lacks off the shelf material for business users, 100% correct. Yeah, so, right. you know, and it's, it, we have a client, actually we have one client that we're working with right now. They're actually implementing S4HANA. They're about to go live here in, in a couple months and they they have been um, asking us like, why why is it you have to custom create these training materials? These, this software has been around for years. I mean, there's tons of material available and that's, that's, I think the, you know, the disconnect oftentimes is the understanding of, yeah, there's a lot of, to your point, Nikki, there's a lot of materials available, but they're not specific to your business. And you're deploying S4HANA in a very different way than any other organization has. Um, even though they're not doing a ton of customization, it's still tailored. It's, yeah. it's configured differently. They use different third-party systems that bolt onto it. All that stuff, you know, you've got to work through. And those little things aren't so little, you know, when, you, when it comes to adoption and training. And back to the original point of why products fail because of this, it's those little things that I don't know how to do in my job that creates sort of a domino breakdown in, our, in the end-to-end -end processes because I don't know how to do one part of the process. No one taught me how to do it or I just don't understand it well. And that ends up leading to a bunch of process breakdowns that can become yeah. pretty material. Yeah, and also in client meetings, the, the dreaded words we hear are, um, oh, it's just off the shelf, or it's just box. out of the box functionality. <laughs> Until they say that, well, the whole world's not using the same chart of accounts for starters. And then there's a whole melee of different areas. Even if it is out of the box with very limited customization, it's still the ERP system used by you, your customers, your suppliers, your product suite, your materials. So it, it still does need to have that bespoke element with regards to training because an off the shelf um, set of training materials doesn't cut it for most ERP implementations. Yeah, and I would I would argue too that the more business value you're trying to get out of your digital transformation or ERP implementation, the more important that employee adoption training is. Because let's just use an example of a multinational organization that's deploying Microsoft D365, and they're using that as an opportunity to standardize business processes and sort of consolidate functions in different locations and move to a shared service model where now you've got consolidated HR, consolidated accounting and finance or whatever. Um, that's that's not just a software deployment. That's a material business transformation. There you're talking about changing people's jobs and how you operate. And so that how do you build that sort of non-technology, but more process and organizational focus into training materials? Have you found that to be an important part of that customization of training? Yeah, it's absolutely critical. And one of the questions we typically ask quite early on is does your, is it an ERP implementation? Or as you said, is it a business transformation program? Do you have a target operating model exercise ongoing? Does it finish before or after your implementation? Ideally before. But the key thing for us is to work with the subject matter experts to 
ask a whole series of questions that start with who, what, why, where, how. Um, so in other words, we're, we are supporting and we're there for the end users because they will be sat in front of an ERP solution about to raise their first sales order and say, where do I choose my customer? Why do I choose that product? Where do I adjust or apply the discount? And it's all of those typical questions that we would ask during the development of those training materials. And it's giving the business context behind why the user does it. So many um, standard training materials um, are literally just functional based. But when I pick something up, if I'm being told to press a series of buttons, especially if we're talking numbers here, I want to know why I'm doing that. So you've got to have that context. And also from a business um, rationale, you want to make sure that your end users, even at field level, are making informed, smart decisions and they're selecting the right values. And um, so that's what you're not going to get off the shelf. That's how we capture that business process information as well. And I suppose one of the other things that I would say is we utilize collateral at the outset and the start of your ERP, ERP engagement, because you're going to have objectives, mission statements, um, targets that you want to meet. And all of that needs to be encompassed and also packaged up as part of the training program. Your comms messages need to be peppered through the training program as well. So the whole thing needs to be joined up and the same messages are being heard by your end user community right from the get-go to the last training session that's delivered or the last piece of self-learning that's completed before you go live. So business process is key. Right. Speaking of business process, how do you, um, where do you recommend that training fits into the sequence of end user training and user acceptance training? Like how, how do you typically see those two best um, interact, those two work streams sort of integrate or intersect? Yeah, that's a really great question. And our clients have different perceptions and takes on it. Um, sometimes they're actually pushed down a certain viewpoint based on where the build is and so on. But ideally when we come on board, um, we would like to be at the start of the UAT process so they can feed outputs to us. But what we've also been asked by clients to do is develop 60% um, of the training program, develop what is ready, and then the subject matter experts or the super users will take those materials into the UAT uh, window or environment, and they'll actually test them. See proof of concept, does this work, is this okay? And they're actually almost testing the training materials um, as they go through UAT. And it's also supporting a lot of those business users that you need to pluck out of the business that have not been exposed to the CRP system. They've not had six months history, you know, with their scrums and their various project meetings and comms. So it's really useful to have those materials available for the UAT audience. Um, we also do offer different flavors of UAT training. It depends who's doing the UAT really. Could be a whistle stop tour, um, because what you don't want to do is um, pull people in from the business when they don't actually know why they're there. So you need to tell them the importance of being a tester, what it's about, how they pass and fail, and how they literally execute test scripts, but also giving them that navigation look and feel of the ERP system they're going to be testing in. So. I suppose that was a very long-winded answer, Eric, to your question. I sincerely apologize, but really, the, I suppose it's all down to the client, where you're at with UAT and how experienced your test user base is going into UAT, and that's how, that, how you then decide what training program is required. That's a great, really well said. I think that's a super important point to elaborate on because um, I think too often people think training's over here. Um, you know, Joanne and Nikki are going to handle the training for me. I might handle the UAT, I'm gonna do that over here. And it, there's oftentimes not that intuition that those are two very related 
work streams and they should reinforce one another. I mean, the UAT can be a great way to to learn the system as you're going through UAT. But to your point too, Nikki, it's a great way to poke holes in and perfect and fine tune the training materials so that you can refine that yeah. and make it ready for prime time to roll out to the broader the the broader audience. Yeah, absolutely. And when we typically scope um, ERP programs, um, we'll also utilize UAT because we want the client to be spending their training budget in the most efficient and best way that they can. So if you've only got two people managing fixed assets in a shared service center, get them involved in UAT, get them on board early. And there's your on-the-job training. You don't need to develop a full um, classroom or informal structured session if you've already got them involved at that early stage. Right, right. That's no, really well said. I'd love to hear from the audience too. You know, what, what have you seen work in training uh, deployments in terms of, you know, what have you seen work or fail? You know, what have you seen to be a, a big sticking point in your experience, either a, if you're going through a transformation now, or if you've been through one in the past, I'd love to hear the audience's feedback on what they've seen work or cause failure when it comes to, to training and adoption. We're here with Nikki and Joanne from Optimum and OnboardERP.com talking about employee training and adoption and how that influences the success or failure of an ERP implementation or digital transformation. We've got a lot more to talk about. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who wakes up next to you. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here having a conversation with Joanne and Nikki from Optimum in the UK, talking about how employee training and adoption can contribute to ERP and digital transformation success or failure. Let's jump back into the conversation. Here's a couple of other comments I'll share with you all, and, and I'm going to turn to a question here too from the audience. Uh, but this is from Videng on LinkedIn or Videng. I'm not sure. I may be, I'm probably enunciating that incorrectly, and I apologize for that. Um, but I feel training is more important, and the interest of the employees is also its key point. So um, great point there from, from LinkedIn. And then here's a question. It's a little bit of longer question. I'm going to see if I can show it on the screen and I'll read the part that gets cut off here. Um, this is from Laik on LinkedIn. Laik says, as much as we all thinking about, as much as we all think and talk about systems, I really think that the main driver of failing is uninterested people. Why? I think communication is the key. If you clearly communicate and keep it open from the start, even before you start, that gives your employees confidence and insight and ownership. Very important to keep the communication going. So I guess that it, maybe I'll turn that into a question. When you think about employee communications and employee training, obviously there's a lot of overlap and similarities and, and they're both very important sub work streams within change management. 
how does training and communication typically tie together? Or how do you see them intersect or reinforce one another? Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Communication is key. Um, and with the training program, we typically try to work very closely with any communication work stream that there is. Um, and the comms need to be drip fed, not too much because they'll be inundated, but they need to be kept informed. And there's a really fine line. And we've come across um, a number of different communication outfits or approaches that have done just that and done a, a really good job. But I suppose the other thing, um, coming back to the point about uninterested people, you're right. In fairness, some people will say, I cannot believe this, but they will say IT is too dry a subject, ERP, too dry a subject. And the key thing with training is we need to sell it to our audiences. And I don't mean, um, you know, raw skirts and running into the classroom and being super, super excited, but we need to sell the training solution or the ERP solution so that it shows our end user that it's going to make them more efficient. It's going to make their jobs easier. So many of our users trained in a new ERP system are so admin and transactional heavy that they're losing the, the key part of their role, which could be supplier or customer facing or buyer facing because they're so bogged down with administration. And if the training solution can show how it's going to make their lives better, easier, and also more profitable for the business, that's all for the good. And hopefully it keeps those people interested. But yeah, that's a very valid point. Uninterested people make for very poor delegates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I'd argue too that I'd, I'd maybe challenge the assumption that this is an ERP implementation, whatever whatever this is to you as an organization. I think one of the first mistakes is to think of it as an ERP implementation, and it's really not. I mean, you are deploying a new tool, yes, of course, but there are broader business process changes and broader organizational impacts and changes that you're enabling with that technology. And I think that's maybe part of the problem is you're viewing this as ERP training, and really it's it's not ERP yeah. training, it's business training, it's process training, organizational training, job role training, all that stuff. Absolutely. And if you can link those benefits, not only to the business, because there might be, you know, that opinion, those in glass um, towers, all of the benefits for the management. Actually, what we try to do is when training is introduce those benefits to you as the end user. How is it going to make your life easier? How are you going to make this process more streamlined? How are you going to be more profitable? So it really is important that we take on board what the end user um, is doing in their day role, but also make it a, a positive experience for them. Um, because, yeah, it's very difficult to get them interested because they do perceive it as IT or just an ERP system. It's more than that. Right, absolutely. Here's a comment from uh, Satish on LinkedIn. Satish says, training and quality TM is super critical to make any ERP successful. So Satish really point. agrees. Yeah, great <laughs> point there. Um, training material, another question here from uh, Satish again, training material should be uh, created before uh, UAT to conduct that UAT. So sure. agree with you on that point too. Yeah, yeah. And again, it does depend on um, where you're at with your UAT cycle. If it's relatively early, there's only so much that the materials can do. So what we do is typically work very closely with the UAT teams and almost strip feed those materials based on each weekly cycle. So we know we've actually got the, the right materials ready to, to test in that environment. But also make sure you leave some um, contingency or a percentage of your training development days to finalize and update those materials once all of the outputs of UAT are known. Right. Right. Now, here's a good question that sort of brings us upstream a little bit in a in a transformation project. And this is from Kyler on LinkedIn. Kyler says, in my experience, the most critical aspect of user adoption training is the assessment. Conducting a needs assessment to determine the specific training needs of employees can help ensure that the training is targeted 
and relevant. So what are your thoughts on, you know, maybe shifting that into a question? What do you do up front in a project? Let's just say we're in a nowhere close to UAT yet. We're still, you know, in the design or build phase of a, of a project. What, yeah. what should we be thinking about or doing from a training perspective if we haven't already? Yeah, so um, I think that that point is absolutely key because we work very closely with organisations that have started their training needs analysis. So they've identified their, their, their current world and also what the new world would look like. But it's typically a huge spreadsheet with thousands and thousands of lines and there's no human element to it. We need to create um, a training programme off the back of that. So with regards to your training needs analysis, it does take quite a while. Um, we found that um, some internal training managers have tried to do that themselves. Um, other organisations have worked far better by creating um, a format, an information gathering format, normally in Excel, that can be sent out to the businesses and completed in record time with more factual and correct information coming back. One thing I would say is some TNAs have actually utilised login information access information from previous legacy systems that just doesn't work you have people out there that we don't know are sharing ids and some may be staying logged on for goodness knows how long so it's really um, unreliable depending on how old your legacy system is to rely on those types of stats so i would definitely go out to the business but make sure you've got an information capture tool that's easy to use um, and then as a result of that that can form the foundation of your end user training program or plan right yeah makes makes total sense so in other words we should not wait until it's almost time for training to then just start training no. the trainers is that what you're saying <laughs> yeah you need to start thinking about it because you need to start thinking about your audiences and let's not forget if we've got a, um, a tom or a target operating model running alongside this and your roles and your departments are going to be changing you should be ever thinking about how you're going to be grouping those users and so sometimes it's not until um else on board and starts asking these types of questions where people literally do sit back and think good question didn't think of that but the good thing is is if you do your scoping early enough, it means you can start molding those different um, user groups as well so everybody's going to get the right training right right very interesting so this is a, a a comment that i'll turn into a question as well this is from linkedin i apologize i don't see the name of the person that asked this question but the question is or the comment is Quick reference guides and navigation maps are critical. Teaching users how to access information is more important than flooding them with details. The earlier the user can build confidence with a new system, the better. So with yeah. this comment in mind, what what should we be training about what, what should we be thinking about as it relates to training that goes beyond the classroom? Because I think a lot of times we think about we're gonna train the trainers, the trainers are gonna go into a classroom and teach everyone how to use the system and do the new processes. But what else, what yeah. other sort of training and adoption tools and tactics should we be thinking about? Yeah, there's a few of them up to name, name a couple. For example, um, audiences learn in different styles. You talked about the traditional classroom, train the trainer, classroom delivery. That is not going to cut it for a warehouse operative or a production line operative, right, or a driver. So what mm -hmm. you need to do is you need to be thinking about different ways of training these audiences. And to come back to the LinkedIn comment about making materials available early, it's really important for early engagement, especially if in your warehouse, in your factory, in your production outlets, you are changing your hardware and changing your software. You're introducing touchscreen kiosk screens. All of this is stuff that those type of white collar workers need to touch and they need to play with. Now, this is before um, actual structured training, 
but you can have engagement sessions, almost roadshows. I'm sure some of you already got these planned, but show the audience what they're going to be expected to use. Take the fear factor away so that when you do start to deliver informal, small sessions, slightly off the factory floor, because these guys don't like to be taken into a classroom, they've already seen what that hardware looks like and what that software looks like. So I suppose what I would say is um, there's certain types of learning for certain types of users. If you have field-based engineers or, or salespeople that typically do not want to be in the office because they're not earning, they like to be out on the road, they might actually produce more of a self-learn approach or an e-learning approach. So it's just in time, it's still interactive, but they don't need to put something in their diary that they're probably going to cancel anyway. So um, depending on your user group, the amount of time they have available and the complexity of the subject, that's going to govern the type of training deliverable and the medium that you use. So again, one size does not fit all. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And it sort of maybe a, a flip side to that question or looking at the other uh, side of the, the question in terms of, you mentioned earlier, Nikki, that one of the challenges if you don't do training and adoption well is that you'll have an extended hypercare process and an extended stabilization yes. period of just getting the product in the, in the processes to be stable to where you can just continue your operations. Forget about real business value. This is just keep us out of a true disaster if, if by extending that hyper hyper care. So what should we, you know, having with that sort of challenge in mind or that common pitfall in mind, what, what should we expect in terms of sort of pre go live training and post go live training? Like how do you, how do you typically address that? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? And on how, what to expect in those two phases yeah. of training? So, so this is why I favor the train the trainer model or that collaborative ex, um, approach with us and our clients. Um, when they do say that they just don't have the resource to do any of the delivery and they want to, us to do it for them or they give it to contractors, um, we will move on and the contractors will move on. But if you've got that um, expertise in house, it means that you've got your business as usual and your induction training readiness. But what a lot of our clients do, um, I'll give you a perfect example. If we're training a finance audience, a group of accountants, um, they'll say when we're working out what training program to deliver. Right. So these guys post journals, you know, single uh, multiple line volume. They do various different types of um, reporting. They do month end. They do year end. And immediately I'll stop them and I'll say, normally you go live at the start of your fiscal year. So it is pointless training somebody. 11 months too early on how to do a year end. And there's lots of different instances where there might be some quarterly processes or processes that are not necessarily required from day one. So some clients have adopted approach where they do a just-in-time training program. Um, all of our users start working on ERP and there might be some super users or specialists that are churning out those specialist orders, whatever they might be. And then you have your second round of training. Once assistance fed it in, People are calmer, they're ready to embrace new functionality, and it's that new functionality that wasn't necessarily needed from day one. So again, one size doesn't fit all, so you could approach it very differently and only just, and only give just-in-time training prior to go live. But there should be a mechanism whereby you've got um, a training program following go live for sure. Right. Yeah, that's really well said, and, and I love the prioritization of processes, you know, the things that you don't necessarily need to cram in, into the pre go live training. It's not going to, it has absolutely zero value at that moment in time. In fact, it, it, it's just a waste of time and money at that point. Cause you're going to have to retrain them later anyway, because things will change. People will forget what you taught them 11 months ago. So I think that's a great point. So make sure you're training them on the right things at the right time. Exactly. Yeah.
We're here with Nikki and Joanne from Optimum and OnboardERP.com talking about employee training and adoption and how that influences the success or failure of an ERP implementation or digital transformation. We've got a lot more to talk about. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here having a conversation with Joanne and Nikki from Optimum in the UK, talking about how employee training and adoption can contribute to ERP and digital transformation success or failure. Let's jump back into the conversation. Here's a, here's a really good question that I'm really excited to ask you guys. Um, where is it? So this is a, I feel like this is one of those questions where a lot of people that hear this question are probably gonna have a sinking feeling and say, uh-oh, to themselves because they're gonna realize this is happening on their project because it happens all the time. This is from Laik on LinkedIn, and Laik says, I have a question to ask. How do you align your training schedule with your client's and SI timeline? An SI is system integrator, technical implementer, technical consultant. You know, it's a semi-interchangeable term. Um, sometimes I feel as though you as trainers and SIs are responsible for timeline uh, would be going for conflicting goals. So let me rephrase that. So sometimes the, the trainers and the training needs are going to conflict with what the timeline is that the SI or the system integrator has put out there. So how do you, how do you reconcile that? I imagine you've probably seen that yeah. a times. <laughs> That's a brilliant question. And normally we're um, not necessarily at fisticuffs, but we do have SIs that need um, and de demand the need of uh, their SMEs, our super user time. And we also have that same requirement as well. So there's a, a number of different ways of approaching it. Now, please don't roll your eyes. I'm glad I can't see anybody watching this podcast, but one of the things I was going to say is think about your project as a stage production. Every lead actor has an understudy and every single project I've been on, bar one or two, and I've been in the game for quite a long time, never has enough resource. And as you get closer and closer to go live, those poor subject matter experts or super users are pulled in every direction data cleansing, scripting, training, meetings with SIs, meeting with people like us, there just isn't enough of them to go around. So if you have got the potential, you're just pulling together the structure of your project team, think under studies if you can. With regards to the SIs and um, vying for the same amount of time, what we've typically done on some projects is we've actually had both the SI and the super user in the room at the same time, because sometimes the SI is going to give us the um, technical information or the functional how-to, and other times uh, the SME will only know that business content. And when you have that disconnect, it's really important to join those two up. 
With regards to vying for their time, again, it's just about being fair and having done it multiple times before, we take a lot less to develop content because we have templates and so on, and we just have that experience. But nevertheless, it is a true challenge on your project when the SI is vying for you know the same resources as we are and you are. But it's also about flexibility, right, with the resources. So we do have to plan our training timeline against the, the clients or the SI's training timeline, and that can change. Mm. The goal life can move, the window between UAT and goal life can shrink or expand. So you need a training partner or trainers that are flexible, that can offboard and reboard um, to align with that SI timeline. Right. Yeah, that makes makes total sense. And it it also, I think, raises the question or the thought in my mind that it's how important it is to not get so myopically focused on just building the software that you totally forget about training. And I think one of the interesting human dynamics that, that I see in the projects like these that are just truly fascinating to me is that we as humans can see and touch the software. And it's like we get so fixated on let's just put all of our time and effort in making sure the software quote unquote works. And then we'll get to the training when we get to it. You know, it's almost like that part doesn't matter unless we can get the software to work. And so there's part of me that thinks, well, do you really need as much software to work then? Do you need to deploy as much software if you're not doing the training well? Maybe you cut back the scope of the technology and but really double down on the training and do that really, really well. And yeah, maybe you haven't deployed all the cool bells and whistles you want, but at least you've deployed what you did deploy. You deploy it really well. People are using it well. You've mitigated risk and all that stuff. Is that a sort of painful or... Um, a conflicted discussion you often have with your clients as far as maybe it's time to think think about where you rededicate or focus your efforts? Yeah, very much so. And, and it's, it depends on who you've got that's working on a particular work stream because they might just be typically technically minded. And then you'll come along, I will come along and say, so why does the end user need to do this? Oh, because of X, Y, Z. But if they just did this one process or tick this one box, that's doing the same thing right, but it's not overcomplicating it. And I'm not talking about dumbing down the training, but it's really important that, as you say, with all bells and whistles, they can come later with, with subsequent phases. It's really important to bed in solid processes that are not trying to do everything from the first go live. It might be go live two or three, it might be in ways, but it is really important to bed in just those solid processes. We do find projects delay because they've been far too ambitious and they've tried to go live with too much in the short period of time that they've got. Right. Yeah. Mm. Very, very true. That's a, that's a interesting dynamic. And back to the point about when you don't invest in training and employee adoption, or you don't invest in it well, the cost that you might've saved by not investing in adoption training is exponentially outweighed by the risk and the disruption that you cause to your business. And I think that's something that organizations have a lot of trouble seeing and trying to quantify, which is, yes, I might have to spend more time and money on training and adoption, but it's going to save me X amount of time and money because I'm not going to have a disaster on my hands operationally once I once I do go live. And it's, it's so hard for organizations, especially executives, to, to really get their heads around that. It is. It's those hidden costs that you sort of can't quantify early on. Um, and we get asked that a lot about, you know, what is it going to cost? What What is the cost of training? And when it's really early on, it's kind of sometimes difficult to cost it up front. But we can give an indicative, you know, indication of what it might cost. Um, but I think a rule of thumb that we can give is to consider around 10% of the overall consultancy days that you've bought with your SI or your partner to dedicate to bespoke end user training program. 
that's just a rough kind of rule of thumb if people are sitting here about to embark on an ERP implementation you can sort of calculate that as what your investment should be on uh, professional training right and that's a great point I mean it, you know we can quantify that number and say I was planning on a $10 million US dollar implementation. So now it's going to be 11. So let's just say I'm going to, sp- I'm going to spend a million dollars or 10% uh, on mm-hmm. the, on the training and adoption. So then I think, well, what, okay, that's, that's a million dollars. I could theoretically save a million dollars by not doing that, but what would that cost on the flip side? Like, I think it's important to ask the what if questions of what if I can't ship product for a month, what, what does that cost me? And a lot of times when you look at those costs of like, I can't ship product, I can't run payroll, can't close the books, you know, what, what does that cost you? And you almost look at it as a sort of insurance policy. Like if I spend a million dollars on training and adoption, I'm not a hundred percent eliminating the risk, but I am significantly mitigating the risk of having potentially 10 or 20 times that cost of disruption post go live. And a lot of organizations don't connect those dots or, or try to quantify it, but I think it's important to, to do that for sure. Um, Here's an interesting uh, question from from uh, Gus on, on LinkedIn. He says, train the trainer sometimes loses credibility as people come and go. I would record all workshops and use this for knowledge transfer. And I think that's a great point, not only for people that come and go, but also so many organizations that are going through transformations and ERP implementations are doing so in the context of either existing or planned merger and acquisition activity. So if you're going to go acquire companies in the future, merge, you, you have that this this becomes collateral and and um, knowledge capital that you can use to make those future m a activities much more yeah, absolutely that is a good shout as well and also when you're developing training programs i think we spoke about it um, a little earlier um, to avoid any type of dilution and um, to avoid those workarounds if you've got those scripted training plans as well it ensures that the best practice messages and the correct usage of the system is being enforced when training is being delivered post go live which is really important right yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess just to maybe bring this all full, full circle and sort of put a bow on this entire thread of, of employee adoption and training, um, what recommendations would you give to an organization that are perhaps perhaps they're early in their digital transformation, perhaps they're just evaluating potential ERP systems, or maybe they've just selected their ERP system and they're getting ready to start design and they're headed into their implementation. What sort of uh, what sort of recommendations would you make or give to organizations that are about to get started on a transformation? How, what should they be thinking about and doing from an employee adoption and training perspective? Sure. I think for me, number one is careful planning and do it early. Consider and understand all of your training options. Um, don't assume that your partner or your SI is going to handle all of the training. You know, scratch away at the contract or ask the partner, you know, what is the detail? and do that early on. Um, The second one is don't assume that using contract trainers will be a cheaper option. They vary in quality um, and the documentation they produce can sometimes lack consistently because they all use different methodologies. Um, And also my my most point that I hammer into every client I talk to, and it's a really expensive mistake that we see far too often, don't onboard contract trainers too early. We see contract trainers onboarded a year before go live um, and they're sort of getting embedded in the project and understanding what the constraints are and the processes. There's a timeline that you should follow with training. Training should start to be developed just before UAT or around the testing time. You don't need to onboard them a year before go live. And it's a really expensive mistake that 
we get called into sometimes to clean up afterwards. And I think that comes from, and we always use this analogy that sometimes the partners will say, well, we're taking nine months to build this system for you, to build this machine. You can't get a trainer to come in two months before go live and understand it all. But in fact, the professional ERP trainers can because we are teaching the end users how to drive the car and not lift the bonnet up and, and fix the engine. And I think that's a perception that's sort of drip fed down to many organizations from certain partners and SIs. So don't onboard the contract trainers or trainers too early. Right. That's, that's a great point. And then what happens too, if you do do that or make that mistake that you mentioned, Joanne, is that you train people too early or you train the, the you bring on the contractors and onboard them too early. And then people start to lose confidence in the overall tra training and change management initiative. They start thinking, well, this is just a waste of time and money because they're not, you know, because you did it wrong. Yeah. You're spending this time and money and, and you're not doing it right. And so then people start to question the overall work stream or the threat or the importance of it. Sure. There's that, but then there's also the cost of having to rework all the materials because things yeah. are changing throughout that year. Every testing phase, SIT, UAT, things are going to change. So they're just constantly reworking materials. Whereas if you bring the trainers in at the right time, when you're nearly ready and it's very stable, then that's when you start developing all of those training documentations, which is going to feed into the training that's delivered to the end users. Right. All right. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you, Nikki. Great conversation. That was a, a topic that's I consider long overdue for this podcast. In fact, I would love to have them on again in the future to chat about that topic in a bit more detail as well and to cover some additional dimensions. But I think that was a good starting point for a really important topic here uh, within digital transformation, success versus failure. In fact, it's so important. We're gonna unpack a few of the threads that we picked up in that conversation here in just a moment. First, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And uh, Kyler, we just had on the show, uh, we had uh, Nikki and Joanne here to talk about employee training and adoption and how that leads to success or failure, depending on how you address training and adoption. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways after hearing that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this was one of those conversations that I thought I had a pretty good insight into, which I, you know, I do, but at the same time, I learned so much from both of them about, you know, the tactical approach and the strategic approach of user adoption and training. And it reminded me of kind of like change management, but training, I almost think we should take a vote and almost rename, 
you know, because so many times training can have such a negative connotation of we're going to sit, you know, in a classroom, or we're going to go through all of these different things. So there can just be some unspoken resistance um, to that. But it, it truly is a critical part of achieving that third stage, which is why we're there a lot of the time, because unfortunately, and you definitely want your opinion on this and the audience opinion if you've been through it, um, software vendors and SI, though they they may help on some of those pieces, they're not truly concerned with what is your training plan and how are you going to achieve your maximum business value or, or strategic objectives of your digital transformation project post-implementation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, training is one of those handful of things that a big system integrator, and we've, we talked about system integrators in the opening segment and in the question and answer segment, but it is one of those things that system integrators will say, oh, yeah, we don't worry about it. We've got training all figured out. We're going to train the trainer and it's going to be great. Uh, in some cases, a lot of the system integrators and software vendors even have a tool that you can use to create training content and collateral. Um, like SAP has something called that Enable Now, and Oracle has something that I forget the name of because uh, they changed the name not too too long ago, a few years ago. That and I'm I'm drawing a blank on what it's called now. But point being, a lot of these software vendors have either created their own or developed or or acquired a uh, sort of a training and adoption tool set that allows people to to create. Um, tailor-made training content, but those are fairly limited and fairly one-dimensional and, and there's better ways to do that. So I think that you're right. It is something that vendors and system integrators just totally underestimate because it's not what they do. It's not what they're, they're good at building software and deploying software. They're not good at training. They're not good at change management. They're not good at, you know, re helping redefine a business process or a strategy for an organization in, in terms of technology and all that stuff. So um, I think it's just, which is okay. You can't expect them to be everything to everyone, but it is something to be aware of. Yeah, and I think um, they both did a great job of explaining the overall roles and responsibilities. Just many times, training is so much more of a strategic packaging. It's almost a full-on communication plan. I, it is a full-on communication plan. Um, and it takes you know some experts to understand how are you going to identify the unique needs of each user base, whether it's by department or roles and responsibilities. And that blanketed approach that sometimes a lot of those SIs offer doesn't always meet the needs of each employee or match the culture of an organization. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And I like how they talked about that too, about how, you know, you've got to sort of tailor your training for who you are as an organization and, and the business operational needs and what you're shared service model is going to be and how you're going to be organized, all that stuff, you've got to factor that into your training collateral. So it's more about training in general and training for a new set of processes and tools and organizational roles, roles and responsibilities. That's the focus. It's not just on using a new tool, which is what the system integrators tend to want to focus on. Absolutely. And, and I learned a lot about kind of that phase zero optimization, that that training conversation really needs to happen there. And it's not just a, oh, we'll train everyone on a webinar and they'll love it and it'll be perfect and be great. You know, it, it really does need to have like a succinct strategic roadmap to achieve training and user adoption. Um, and that's something that I didn't I didn't really consider as a high priority in that phase zero tra tra training, but I learned, you know, obviously from this conversation that it really should be. It really should be something that is discussed strategically up front when you are talking about even before 
software selection, implementation, when you're in those planning phases, it needs to be something that you you address and have a really clear plan for. Um, and then I also didn't understand like the complexities of training communication. Like it has to go through all departments, right? Of, you know, that technology is the spine of the organization, but you may have one user group that's really receptive to it. And then you might have another user group that isn't, uh, or they're, you know, they're, their job changed 95% with the new technology and the other people's job changed 5%. Um, so you really have to have kind of a unique approach. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why that change impact assessment early on, the definition of the organizational design, the training assessment, all that stuff you should do up front. And ideally you would do that before you ever draw a line in the sand and define what your implementation duration and resource requirements and budget are going to be because if you do the planning process without fully understanding what the change impacts are and what the training strategy is going to be chances are pretty high that one of two things is going to happen you're going to you're going to sort of force fit a training plan and program into a, a overly compressed timeline or what even more organizations do is they say well we can't fit it in and we're not going to slow down or push out or go live just for training because why would we possibly do that, right? But but uh, but that's the mentality that organizations often have is we're, we're not going to push that date out, so we better just right-size to fit in that artificially compressed timeline that some vendor gave us or that the system integrator gave to us. Absolutely. Well, um, not that I haven't put you on the spot enough um, this episode, but I'm going to turn to the audience. I think it would be awesome if the next time you're at our UK office, because we do have offices um, in the United Kingdom as well for third stage that you guys do a, a workshop that we can sign up for. So if you agree, give me a little thumbs up here um, or a yes in the comments and we can um, we can hopefully get a more succinct because I'd really love an example of like, how does that work? How do you implement it? And I think it would be so cool to have you do that with um, with these resources as well to get really give us that granular information. It's a great idea. I, well, I'm not, I don't want to bias the audience, even though yeah. I think I already did by giving even my Even though I, I voluntold you here. And this <laughs> right. But, exactly. you know, um, I just think there's so much more to unpack there. It was one of those where I was left like, oh, we only have five minutes and everybody has so many questions and so many great questions from the audience. So thank you for, for all of that great engagement. And yeah, just pop that thumbs up in here if you want to see kind of a more um, uh, full-fledged workshop. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, I'm curious to see what the audience thinks and if it's aligned with with my preferences as well and with your preferences. So we'll see where we land. Uh, well, good. Well, we're going to shift gears now and stay in the same thread here. We're going to actually, uh, what do you call that? We're going to we're gonna zoom out a little bit from just training and adoption and talk more broadly about change management. So we're going to zoom out a little bit and talk about a case study at a Fortune 100 client of third stages where we recently helped them with the change management components of their SAP S4HANA transformation. And again, even if you're not interested in, or even if you're not deploying SAP in particular, we're going to talk about some general principles and general concepts that are relevant to any sort of digital transformation. And the beauty of this case study is certainly if you're a large organization, there's going to be a lot of relevant stuff to, to consider here. But even if you're a, a smaller, mid-sized, high growth organization, we're going to talk in, in some to some degree about the things to think about as you scale your organization and how change management might fit into that. So uh, extremely relevant topic, no matter what kind of, no matter what size of organization you might be or what technology you might be deploying. So we're going to have Nate Storer on the show. He's from the third stage consulting team. He's one of our senior executives 
Uh, he's a practice lead here in the United States office. He's going to be on the show talking about uh, this change management case study with you, Tyler. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have that conversation between you and Nate. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And uh, Kyler, you, you're going to have this great conversation here with Nate Stroer, who's a practice lead here at Third Stage Consulting. And he's going to talk about a case study, at a, or a change management case study at a Fortune 100 client of ours. Um, so I'll hand it off to you to have that conversation with Nate. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Eric. Um, and welcome, Nate. Let's kind of dig into this case study. Can you tell us a little bit about your role here at Third Stage um, and just kind of your background in digital transformation, organizational change management in general? Okay, great. Thanks. I'm a practice lead here at Third Stage Consulting and um, have been involved in a lot of our uh, company's change management initiatives. We, uh, we Our change management practice is growing a lot over the last few years. And we have uh, we have uh, a lot of different change management initiatives, um, usually doing the same thing throughout the life cycle of the project. But we obviously today we're going to talk about a Fortune 100 billion dollar chemical manufacturer, and really we do the same steps for some of our clients that might only have about 20 to 30 million dollars in revenue. So as we talk today, um, I'll try and highlight some of those areas where we are really doing the same thing for each client. It's just the scale of what we're doing and the magnitude of what we're doing varies depending on not only the the size of their revenue, but the complexity of their operations and the location of their operations. Our client that we'll talk about today is uh, multinational. So there was a lot of challenges that we helped them with and, and really a lot of the reason why we were in there was a result of some of the challenge they were facing from an international point of view. Absolutely. And that's an excellent point. With any of our third stage case studies, what we try and do is just pull out nuggets or initiatives that you really can scale across any industry size, um, those different pieces of why we we dive into the actual client work. So let's do that. Let's talk a little bit about what this project entails. So can you give us just a kind of a quick overview of why third stage was called in and, and kind of the high level work that you were um, engaged to perform? Yeah, great. So we we were brought in and we were uh, initially contacted about four years into a large ERP software implementation on an international, multi-functional, multi-location, multi-divisional um, ERP implementation. So we were we were asked um, for our involvement, which was initially 
very small, and that was to help them come up with a change management plan, um, which quickly grew uh, from a three-month project to help them come up with that plan to actually build that plan and execute it. So uh, we traditionally think of change management initiatives as starting um, at the time we are in the software selection or the any of the digital transformation steps. We usually try and uh, start the change management initiative either before or at the same time. In this case, we were really probably about four and a half years after, or we were about four and a half years late to the party is the best way to mm. put it. So we, um, we, we basically took our, as a starting point, we told them, here's, here's sort of what a traditional change management initiative looks like. And then we said, you know, right now you should be about here out of this big of an initiative and we will help you start where we are now and continue to keep the ball rolling. But we're also going to say, hey, it's important that these first two steps that we somewhat missed, that we we go through and we address those as well so that we give you the entire package. So I kind of uh, compare it to we came into a house that was um, six months into being built and they had skipped a bunch of the, the steps and we went through and said, hey, you know, you've got to make sure you're shoring up these parts of the the, the build process so that you can go through and at the end of the day you can have a, a complete house not a house that's only been built from six months to 12 months you need to go through and make sure everything is completed yeah that that foundational aspect of ocm is always what we recommend but many times we see whether a project's in the red or they've gone through a failure that they realize the importance of ocm and that's why we talk about organizational change management as much as we do to kind of break that um, misunderstanding that it's it's not a key component, a key pillar of project success. So definitely understand that. So what were some pain points? I can only imagine that going through organizational change management for a company of that size is a huge initiative. So what were some main pay points or focus points that they, they really wanted to address for this project? You know, I think probably first and foremost, the biggest challenge that we had is that there was there was just a ton of organizational fatigue. And I I hate mm -hmm. that. I think that's a way overused cliche. But in this case, it was really relevant. They're, they're four years into an implementation, what probably should have been at the most a two year implementation. Um, they were they were also the result of a lot of acquisitions. So to the mm -hmm. software implementers defense to our clients defense they there, there was some things that that you, you, the, the timeline had to extend so i can't just say hey this should have been a two-year project we were four years into it they were two years behind however um no matter what what the the leading factors are to where you get to where you are they they were tired they were they had had a lot of challenges with um software implementations in the past with technology initiatives in the past so they really they, they were really just you know they came in and they were like okay you know what here's another project here's another initiative that we're going to go through so i would say first and foremost the 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 toughest challenge that we had was to go through and really show what our importance was to the organization the real advantage we had is that we had a we had an organization that really understood and valued the change management piece of any technology initiative. So they they were not just paying lip service to what we were doing. They actually came to us and said, we know there's a lot of importance in this. We've dedicated a team 
to work with third stage to get this done. So we we really were able to deliver the message like, hey, guys, I know everyone's four years into us and into this and we're exhausted, but this is going to make a difference. And let's let's show you the plan and let's work the plan as we've designed it. And this is the benefits that we will come up with. So it was it was really we, we I guess I would say we we had them on our side before we even started. And that was huge. Yeah, and th and that's a real thing. Change fatigue. It's almost you know breathing life back into a project can be a really difficult prospect. And you know it's but it's so important when it comes to having kind of that fresh energy to achieve something that's just really hard. So when you when you look at milestones that you achieved in the project, what are some where you kind of we're going along and you thought, oh, wow, we've we've achieved something or we're creating change or we're, you know, breathing life back into the project. Can you give us an example of of something you experienced along the way where you felt like, you know, this change management practice is working? Uh, yeah, and I think I'll, I'll start off with kind of two of the really big milestones. And I, I mentioned them a little bit earlier, but the first was going through and actually creating the plan that we created for them. So, like I said, it, when we first came in for our first three months working with them. We we gave them a high level overview of here's where you are and here's where you need to be. Then we came in and we we worked with the teams to say, okay, um, now we're going to come in, we're going to look at all the activities that you've done in the past, and we're going to show where that where that lines up within our overall change management timeline. And we're going to create the plan. Here's where you are and here's the steps that you need to complete. So that first milestone, which seems like a, a very, um, you know, a very, very small milestone, but I think that that was really huge, was to get everyone on the same page. And and um, and our team, um, Brett Petruzzi and Cam Cameron Carpenter, did a really good job of putting together uh, just a very succinct, like, here's where you are, here's where you need to be, and here's what you need to do to get there. And and I, I bring that up because of the fact that um, it, it was really important to go to this client and say, like, you know, this is plain English where we are. So now forget everything that's happened in the past, forget your fatigue, forget all the challenges that you had. We're going to lay out a very easy map and timeline for how we need to get to where we need to go. Absolutely. And and that's the thing, the thesis, I think, of any misconceptions around organizational change management if it's, it's kind of just a, a, you know, a meditation, Zen coaching session when it's it's actually a very strategic and needs a, a heavy project management approach because you do have a pretty sophisticated plan that needs to match up with timelines across the organization. Mm -hmm. We're here with Kyler and Nate talking about a change management case study at a Fortune 100 client of third stages. We've got a lot more to dig into in this conversation, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting 
to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Tiedem, and Kyler is here with Nate Stroer chatting about a change management case study at a Fortune 100 organization. Let's jump back into the conversation. I'll hand it back to you, Kyler. So knowing there were so many, I would assume, subcultures, because we see that a lot, specifically with M&A um, projects or when you have kind of forced together one company culture versus the other. And then all of a sudden you kind of speed towards, well, we need a new succinct centralized technology without kind of recognizing the challenges of just getting all of those companies kind of on a standardized operating plan. So is that something that you had to kind of help them understand or craft when it came to all of those different cultural dynamics? Yeah, absolutely. And um, and I think we heard um, and and people uh, people that have been through a lot of technology implementations, you'll almost be able to watch their their body shudder when you hear the phrase lift and shift. And and that was um, we one of our first workshops that we had with the client, uh, a really really smart leader of one of their uh, branches, one of their uh, divisions, said, you know, really guys, this is just a great big lift and shift. It's going to look a little different. It's going to act a little different. But for the most part, we're looking at one software and now we're going to be looking at another. Um, so so the big challenge there was was really sitting down um, and looking at, at two different factors that were in play. First of all, uh, some of the some of the pieces of the organization, um, we, we broke it down into seven different groups, finance and accounting, kind of the, the basics, finance and accounting, sales, marketing, um, operations, uh, facilities maintenance, but but really going through and saying that 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 certain parts of the organization we're going to have very little finance and accounting always you, there's some shifts and there's some changes, but they're really going to see probably the least change. Sales was going to see a huge change, and their R and D group was going to see an enormous change. So it was really going through and saying this is this is the magnitude of change that everyone's going to have, and we really. Um, tried to simplify that as much as possible and just we created a um, a heat map and it was just uh, red, yellow and green. And that was and and it, it seems very simple, but it was really like, hey, these these are the groups you still need to focus on these guys, but they're green. They're, they're going to have the least amount of change. Then you're going to have other groups that you're going to be like, you know, you're, you're going to do different. You're going to do business completely different going mm -hmm. forward. Um, so I, I talk about that in between the different divisions. Then I also um, talk about it within the different locations and also within the different organizations that have been rolled into our clients' um, organizations. So you might have a group that they acquired in Japan that was uh, a 500-person shop, and they were really small. They were very used to doing things. Um, I would almost say kind of a spreadsheet-based, just kind of talk to your a colleague down the hall mentality versus uh, someone walking in from a 20,000 person organization who relies on the system every day for conducting what they're doing. So we had those challenges were really, um, really monumental in, in, in getting the magnitude of for this division, for this group, and for this set of people, 
you're going to you're going to have this much change for this group. It's this much change. And then we really started to focus on let's let's start to really address these red lights and these uh, within the heat map. Um, let's really look at who who are the big major changes um, without ignoring the, the yellows and the greens. Yeah, and that's I mean, that's to your point of just that overall alignment and awareness, because uh, there's so many times we do those workshops and the executive team was like, oh, <laughs> I had no idea, right, that this was going to be so significant for this one department. So yeah. it's just all about that visibility and, and how you really showcase like this is it's not a lift and shift. It might mm -hmm. sound like a lift and shift, but for this department, it's going to be completely different processes around what their jobs and roles and responsibilities are. And that's just stating the obvious right now. You have to address the resistance to new processes or the fear and anxiety around what does it look like to do my job completely different? Um, the thing, you know, I rely on day to day. So there's a lot of kind of aspects wrapped up in that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Nate, uh, in our final thoughts here, um, what would be your your top or top couple recommendations to companies going through a large scale implementation around considerations when it comes to organizational change? What are some top strategies, resources, those types of considerations that they should be aware of so that they're not in a position where they're four years down the road being like, ooh, we might really need um, some support here? You know, I think it probably, um, I can probably narrow it down to the three recommendations. I think I think the first and foremost is is be really, um transparent and do do your homework and do and take the time to sit down as an organization and say where are we where are we going what do we need to do to get there and how uh, how ready are we or how available are we to address this change and that's um i i say that and i and um i i, I say that both from experience and and from um the, the projects that we run there are some organizations that we run into, Tyler, that literally will sit down and we'll get all the executives in a room and we'll say, where are you now? Where are you going? How do you get there? What are the challenges? How ready are, are you for this? And they can answer those and they they get about 80 to 90 percent of the way um, there as far as coming up with concise answers to all those questions. They're in really good shape. Um, there's uh, on the other hand, we have the majority of our clients say we're all on the same page. This is going to be a half day workshop that's really going to be, you know, we're just going to blow through this and we're going to be ready to go and let's get on with the data transformation initiative. They'll walk out of that saying, oh my gosh, you know, we're we're all on the we're all on a different page. We we looked mm -hmm. at this realistically. We're not ready for the change. We don't know exactly, you know, from from an organizational point of view, just exactly what's going to change and how this change is going to affect our daily activities. So number one, I would say be realistic about where you are, where you're going, and how you're going to get there. Um, number two is do do your homework, and um, and that's and I and I'm not saying this from a sales point of view from, from this video, but I but really you know sit down and read read articles and talk to people who have gone through this and talk to a third stage consulting or any other um, resources that you have out there to really say you know what exactly is change management and and how is it going to help you? I think. Uh, people still have that that warm, fuzzy feeling of like, hey, the real meat of this is the technology implementation, which it is. But here's how you can take advantage of of the money you're spending on these technology initiatives to really get the most bang for your overall buck. So um, really kind of sitting down and talking to other people and saying, how is this change management initiative going to help us out? 
and then I think uh, the 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 next um, best or you know my third recommendation is just jump in because it, it it takes a lot of time and and even if you're a year away from thinking about your software selection and your implementation, it really helps to sit down and just start asking these questions. Where are we and what what things can we get put into place? Because once you get to the point where you're going to start selecting software and you're going to start these digital transformation initiatives, your, your time is going to be full. Your calendar is going to be full. So the more you can do ahead of time and the more you can address kind of what what are the steps we're going to need to to take to change and to take full advantage of this new technology, the better off you're going to be. All right. Thank you, Kyler and Nate. Great conversation. Very interesting, as always, to talk about change management, not just theoretically, but more specifically, how it's actually evolving and unfolding at a client of ours at this Fortune 100 company. So great conversation there and uh, look forward to unpacking a couple of these topics here with Kyler. When we come back from a quick break, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Could you whisper in my ear the things you want to feel? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 119. Just a reminder, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So, uh, Kyler, a great conversation with Nate from the Third Stage team talking about this change management case study. What were some of your takeaways from the conversation? Well, I always really enjoy talking to Nate about change management because he's so tactical about it. Um, he really talks about like what were the different initiatives that we did, kind of that heat mapping example of showcasing what roles and responsibilities will change or the change assessment and utilizing that data kind of to support the client. So I, you know, I think that's that's something that we talk a lot about, kind of the metrics around change management. Um, as well and and what that looks like. And it's also, I, I just love his grace approach for clients. And we see this a lot. Sometimes, you know, especially bigger companies to kind of say, hey, we've been involved in this implementation for four years and it's not going well <laughs> to kind of come to the table and be able to say that. And our team just goes in and says, you know, this really happens a lot. There's no need to, you know, feel any sort of shame or negativity around this. Um, but that that change fatigue is real, right? Um, that fatigue of going through an implementation that's been kind of rocky and having to come in and re-energize, breathe some life, if you will, back into the project and get those teams excited about it. That's, you know, that's a tall order. And it's something that I, I think is a point of pride for me in working of third stage is that is truly their specialty. They know exactly how to do that, no matter the size of the company, um, but they they do it through showcasing data and through showcasing 
wins as well to say, you know, that all of this work was not for nothing in any way, shape or form. We just, we need to pivot in a few different directions to get back on track. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's an interesting point or question or, or observation because it's, uh, I have mixed feelings about project recoveries. I mean, part of me really likes doing them. You know, when someone's in trouble, it, it feels good as consultants and as a team to come in and help them get back on track and you alleviate some of the stress and you get them to a place where they couldn't have gotten on their own or with their system integrator. And so that part feels good, but it's also hard to come in and reconcile the way things should have been all along with how, with limited time and, and budget and resources to get it done. You know, they're already off track. They've already spent more time and money than they wanted to in many cases. And I'm, I'm speaking obviously well beyond just this one case study here. We, we seem to have a increasing mix of our revenue and client mix at third stage that is increasingly shifting towards more troubled implementations that are hiring us to fix them versus early and third stages growth. It was heavily, heavily focused on greenfield, new, new transformations. And so I, I suppose that's part of just a, a maturing organization or a maturing consulting organization, but it does make me wonder, A, if there's just more failures out there, more troubled implementations that we just didn't know about that are now coming to us for help. But secondly, it, it's, uh, you know, when you see that many of them as we do, it's, it's hard in some ways because you know the way you should do things and then you're, you're sort of limited. Your hands are a bit tied with what you can and can't do in a limited amount of time, which is, which is always tricky. But the good news is that you can have a big impact with, with little, relatively little effort. Absolutely. And, and definitely this team on this project, um, it sounds like they had a, a lot of impact um, on just kind of writing the ship, if you will. Um, yeah. And then the understanding of the complexity, which I learned a lot about, I didn't even know about this with this client, of mergers and acquisitions when it comes to change management specifically and how there can be a sprint with a ton of merger and acquisitions to get standardization of technology. And that can almost make it a little bit worse <laughs> because right. uh, the change really wasn't considered because totally rightfully so the board is like, we got to, we got to get a standardization so we can have visibility into all, all of these different processes, but not understanding that by not considering specifically change management, it can be actually more complex if you're kind of forcing one standardization of processes and technology into a very subcultured community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Well, if you are interested in downloading uh, the transcript and our overall um, white paper on this case day, I'm going to pop up a QR code right here um, that you can go on and it's a free download. We um, give access to all of our case studies again to try and hopefully get in front of any need for those rehabilitation projects um, to consider the importance of change management at the get-go. Um, but definitely take a look at, at that. And if you have um, any questions or feedback on this case study, I'd love to hear in the comments um, if you've been in a similar situation or anything like that. Um, I do go back and pull all of those to consider to bring them as conversation topics for our, our future episodes. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the audience's feedback on that and other conversations we've had throughout today's, today's episode. And uh, thank you, Kyler, for another great episode. And uh, thank you to the audience for being here. And we look forward to seeing you all next time. Again, as a quick reminder, new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. It streams every morning at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern time on those platforms, uh, at which point you can watch them either live or watch them uh, on demand after the fact. And then, of course, you can also go to the audio podcast platforms like Google, Amazon, Spotify, and Apple, uh, among others, to see 
or to listen to the podcast in the audio only format as well. So be sure to check us out there if you haven't already. Uh, Thank you again for being here. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control. Fortune 100. Sorry. What did I say? Sorry, Cassie. It's a a Fortune 100 company. I have no idea why I said 500. I had no intention of saying that. So now I feel like I said 500. Did I say 100? In my mind, I said 100. Yeah, we're all good. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I am just. That was perfect. We'll uh, we'll redo it from the top. Take two. Podcast uh, episode number 119. Take two.